Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So we've been talking about Colossians. We've been going through Colossians, and Paul's been talking about just some really big things um, in Colossians. So Colossians is just... We, we've talked about making this the year of eternal things, really trying to focus on things and see things from an eternal perspective. And we decided that Colossians was a good way to kind of go through that and look at that because Colossians really does deal with so many big things. Paul has talked about the gospel in terms of being forgiven of all our sins. He's talked about the gospel in terms of all of our guilt being nailed to the cross um, and being being taken care of and removed for that reason. Um, he's uh, been talking about how we've been, we've been crucified with Christ, we died with Christ, and now we're alive with Christ that we've been raised to life with him. So he's been talking really, really big terms. And tonight we're going to look at Colossians 3, 5 through 14. And this is one of my favorite sort of ideas or, or, or points of the gospel that Paul makes a lot of places. It's, it's kind of startling, and yet it's not something that he only makes here. This isn't something we can only find in one place. This is something Paul says over and over and over. And so we're just going to pick right up in verse 5 where we left off. So he starts in verse 5. He says this, Put to death, therefore whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And this is an interesting phrase, and it's a weird phrase, and it, it can be a confusing phrase. Because here Paul has just been saying that we've been crucified, and we've been made alive, and now he's saying put to death. So he comes in and he says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And there's a lot of discussion among people who um, are all believers and, and, and all smart and uh, want to honor the scripture, um, and there's different ways that this is approached. And I'm going to share with you why they're wrong and I'm right tonight. That is exactly it, of course. Um, but I'm going to share with you what I think Paul is pretty clear about, not just here, but elsewhere. Um, and I think it's important, and I think it's really powerful, and I kind of want you to see it. But one, one way to approach this passage is that what he's saying here is put to death your earthly nature. That, that there's this, this picture that we have, that when you become a Christian, when you're saved, what happens is you have a good nature and you have a bad nature. You have a spiritual nature and you have an earthly nature. You have a worldly nature and you have a heavenly nature. And that you live with these two natures, and the, the goal, kind of the, the Christian life, becomes this battle of, you know, which side's going to win in you. And, and, and if, so let's for a moment, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, that actually isn't what I think Paul is saying. Personally, I don't understand it that way. Um, and I want to show you why I think that is. But for a moment, let's follow that scenario through. Let's, let's see what Paul is saying, if that's what he's saying, and see if that lines up with what he's been saying all along. So he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So if he's talking here about putting to death our earthly nature, then what he's telling us is that because of our earthly nature, we have earned the wrath of God, and it is coming for us. And what we need to do is we need to put to death this earthly nature that has earned the wrath of God, or the wrath of God is coming probably don't have to think too long to realize that that particular perspective isn't seem to line up with what Paul's been saying all along. He does, later on in this passage, speak of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Again, following this scenario, he speaks of them as part of the other nature and encourages us to emphasize that part of our nature. And so, in that scenario, what we have is the Christian life becomes this battle between the immorality, the impurity, the lust, the evil desires, and greed, the old nature, which is clinging to wanting dominance, and the new nature, which Paul is encouraging us to give dominance. I think there's some significant issues, though, with this approach. 
So I just want to take a little bit of time and walk through some of the problems with what I, what, you know, this two-nature idea of the Christian life. And this is not just a, a sort of a theological hair-splitting moment. I think this is fairly important, significant. And I think it helps us understand the rest of the passage better. So the first problem, the two-nature problem, kind of just the practical one, is it's a self-defeating approach to pit you against you. It is very difficult to win a battle against yourself. In fact, that, that by, by definition, to win a battle against yourself means you also have to lose that battle, right? So, so to say the old, new nature has to beat the old nature, that means one part of you has to beat the other part of you. And it's really difficult to even understand how that works and what does that look like. If you're two natures, if you're split between a good you and a bad you, how is that even possible to fight? What does that mean? Is the bad part of you ever going to allow the good part of you to dominate? No, because it's bad. And is the good part of you... You know, gonna, gonna, what is it going to do with the bad part? And what does it mean to put it to death? What, what does that even look like? Does that mean that we just exercise the good part a lot until it gets stronger and eventually it's dominant and then it can put down the bad part forever? And if not, then what happens if we don't succeed at this? What if, what if we exercise the bad nature and then it becomes dominant and then the wrath of God comes for us? What does that do with the gospel? It's a very complicated thing. It seems really simple at first, and it lines up with sort of a lot of sort of ideas in our head, or concepts, but it really is complicated to, to even figure out if there's a good me and a bad me, what part of me makes the decision of who's dominant? Is there a third part of me that chooses to exercise the good part of me? Because the bad part of me will never choose that. So it becomes really complicated to figure out what that looks like and how that works. I think a bigger problem, though, as I talked about, is if we don't manage, manage to win, then according to this passage, if this is how we read it, then wrath awaits us. And that does not fit with everything else Paul is talking about. Paul has just finished saying to us, what? That our, our sins have been nailed to the cross and removed from us. There is no guilt anymore for us. In Romans, Paul says, there is no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ. In Corinthians, Paul says, you're a new nature. And he says, the old is gone. He doesn't say it's hanging out, or even that it's weaker, or that you have to fight. He just says it's gone. Ultimately, in this two-nature picture, you, you, it feels to me like you end up having to say that the reality of the gospel is that you just still have to do better. I mean, Christ died on the cross, but all that means is now you have a good nature and you just need to do better. Uphold the good nature, let the bad nature somehow... They'll put it to death, however that's done. But there's still so much on us, isn't there? Suddenly we're still responsible for making sure this all comes out right at the end. And the question is sort of, why did Christ die? What was the purpose in that? I really think the bottom line is that this is antithetical to the gospel. Now, again, I want to be clear. I was joking earlier, but I do want to be clear and say that there are, there are brothers that I, I believe are trusting in their salvation by Christ, and they understand things about the gospel. And in many areas, they're much wiser than I am about a lot of things, and we disagree on this. And I, I'm going to speak strongly because I really believe it's really important. But when I say this is antithetical to the gospel, it doesn't mean that anybody who happens to believe in a dual nature is themselves opposed to the gospel. It means I personally think they haven't thought it through. <laughs> But that's true of a lot of things. But I do think this issue, this idea of seeing two natures, a good nature and a bad <coughs> nature, it's antithetical to the gospel in so many ways. First of all, it doesn't even line up with what Paul said just a few verses before when he said that you have already been put to death and you've been raised with Christ. Well, what does that mean? 
if we've been put to death and raised to new life with Christ, but then we still need to put the earthly nature to death, what was put to death? Paul tells us we've been set free from the wrath of God. This passage doesn't seem to indicate that if we're looking at a dual nature. If our job is to defeat the bad half of us, then what did Jesus do at the cross? Apparently just create sort of a good side of us so we can be miserable and ultimately still guilty of wrath until we complete the process. <coughs> but here's the real issue. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. <laughs> and I think if we continue reading, we'll see that. We'll see that what he says will fit, it will line up with what he's just told us in Colossians. It will line up with the idea that we've been forgiven, that we've been set free, that we've been made new. It will line up with the idea that we've been crucified with Christ and we've been raised to life. It will fit not only the rest of Colossians, which certainly it should unless we believe Paul, you know, is crazy or dumb or just changes his mind in the middle of Colossians. But it will not only line up with Colossians, but it will line up with Galatians and it will line up with Romans and it will line up with Ephesians and it will line up with Philippians and it will line up with... So many other things that Paul says. So let's, let's, let's go back a second. Before we go forward, let's go back. Let's catch the context leading into this to remind us where we came from. And then let's see if, if in the whole, in context, if we can make a little bit more sense of this. Remember in Colossians 3, 3 through, 3 through 6, so this is starting from where we ended last week and going through some of today, he says this. For you died. So he says you died already. He doesn't say here that you have to die. He says, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then he says this confusing thing. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Granted, if we stop here, it is a little confusing. Because he says you've died, and then he says put to death. You have to say, what, what is he doing here? But you have to acknowledge, at least, that it can't just be as simple as that you have an earthly nature Christ wants, God wants, Paul wants you to put to death because he's already acknowledged you died. But I do want you to notice even before we move forward, even before the rest of the context helps, there's a fine point here which is relevant and we should note. Paul doesn't actually say in this verse, put to death the earthly nature. You see that? He doesn't say put to death your earthly nature. He says put to death the things which belong to the earthly nature. Not the earthly nature itself. Now this isn't hair splitting. This is really important. I think this is what Paul means to say. He's saying this. It comes on the heels of recognizing that we ourselves have been put to death and raised to new life. So what Paul is saying here is this. Look, hey, you've been put to death. Your old nature's gone. You are no longer simply comprised of the things of the flesh. You are no longer simply comprised of, as an earthly life. You now are a spiritual being. Because what used to be your life has been put to death, therefore you should also put to death the things that are connected with that. It only makes sense. He's saying you're living in ways that, that you think you're still a part of this old life, but that doesn't make any sense. Because you're dead, you should put these things to death. You should treat them as if they're no longer part of you because in reality they aren't. They're part of a habit. They're part of a deception and an old way of thinking. But because they're no longer you, that's why you should put them to death. See, it makes a whole different thing than if he says to you, you are bad, now put to death, you're bad. That's very different from saying, you've been made new, 
Now put to death the things that look old. The things that belong to the earthly nature. Now, as we keep going, this becomes more clear. I want you to see, I wanted to prep you, but I do want you to see Paul says this. And this is what he says. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. So, think, let's, let's think about this for a moment. He doesn't say to them, this is the life you live now. He doesn't say to them, this is what you walk in now. He says, you used to walk in these ways, and yet, he has to be talking about things that they still do, doesn't he? Otherwise, why bring it up at all? Right? Why say put to death these things which belong to the old life, impurity, immorality, and lust, and greed, and evil desires? Why say put those things to death if they're not doing them anyway? So clearly this is an issue. This is something they need to look at. But then as he says, stop doing them, he says the reason you should stop doing them is because you used to walk in these. Because this is the life you used to live. You may do them now, but you don't walk in them now. You don't live in them now. This isn't who you are anymore. Paul says other places, he even says to the church at one point, he says, you shouldn't expect unbelievers to live like believers because they're not. And now he says to believers, you shouldn't expect believers to live like unbelievers because they're not. It's not, not saying they can't, but he's saying this is no longer your life. He's saying, I acknowledge this is how you used to live, and this is why it's confusing. Because your habit, your minds, your desires, your appearance, your behaviors... They look awfully familiar. They look like the life you used to live. But Paul's exhortation is that you should stop doing them not because they are who you are, but because they're not who you are. He's not only saying these are wrong. They are. They're idolatry and they're immoral. But he's saying they also don't make sense for you to live there anymore. The excuse that you used to have, that this is all you had, is no longer true. Remember, to show you that this connects with what we've been seeing in Colossians, remember back a couple weeks when Paul spent all that time saying living the Christian life isn't about what you do in the flesh. Remember when he said if you focus and embrace and say my life is only about what I do in the flesh so I'm going to be hedonistic and do everything, he said that's wrong. But remember he also said if your focus all becomes about what you don't do in the flesh, about denying yourself things of the flesh, he said that's equally wrong and equally worthless, doesn't help you live a good life, or the right life, or a moral life, because it focuses and says that your life is still out there in the flesh. Paul's point is that the life that you are trying, that, that, that if you think that you are just still the same person you were, if you don't believe or recognize or grasp what it means that you've been crucified with Christ, and raised to life with him, then you will continue to live according to old habits because you think it's who you are. And that's a very natural thing to do. But it's the wrong thing to do. Because it's not who you are. These things used to be like. They used to be all you had. See, what Paul says happened at the gospel is not that we suddenly became split in half. And we have a good nature and a bad nature. What Paul says happened at the gospel is that the true essence of who we are was completely changed but it's still housed in this superficial flesh. But that flesh has never been you. And so once upon a time, you had no choice. Paul says elsewhere, you were obligated to the flesh when you were an unbeliever. You had no choice. But now, he says, you're not obligated to your desires. You're not obligated to the flesh. You're not obligated to your thoughts. 
There's something more to you than all that. It's like he's saying these used to be part of who you were, but now they don't belong to you. You keep carrying them around, but they're not yours anymore. Let them go. He goes on, he says this, I love this. He says, do not lie to each other. That's good advice. And maybe that's what he means here, is just don't speak lies to each other. But I actually wonder if he means more, because listen to what he says. He says, do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator. Again, notice the past tense. Notice the past tense. He said, doesn't say take off the old self and put on the new. He says, you have taken off the old self, you have put on the new self. And even that isn't something you've done. It's just something that you've done by accepting what Christ has done at the cross. That's when that transaction happened. But now that that's happened, he says, don't lie to each other, which could mean don't tell each other lies. It could mean that because we should be honest people. But what if what he really means is this? What if what he means is that when you live as if your desires, your thoughts, and your behaviors are the total of who you are, when you live as if those struggles that you had before really are who you are, when you live as if you're not a new creation, what if what he's saying is that you're living a lie? This is fascinating to me because we tend to think the other way. I mean, let's just be really honest here for a moment. As Christians, we all know we have thoughts that we would not want other Christians to know we have. I'm your pastor. I acknowledge that. I drew it myself. I've often said telepathy would be just about the worst curse upon mankind. So we all know we have these thoughts, and we all know we have these desires that we wouldn't other people know that we have. And occasionally we behave in ways we would not want anyone to know that we do those. And so we look at that and we think that's who we are. And because we think that's who we are, then we go to church and we put on a smile and we try to live a good life and we try to live a righteous life, and that feels like a lie. And so we get in this mindset where we feel like what it means to live the Christian life is to live a lie, is to pretend you're better than you are is to put a face on that says, I am better than I really think I am. And Paul is trying to turn that on its head and say to them, I understand that the life you used to live and the things you used to walk in are still hanging out. I understand that your desires and your behaviors and your thoughts are all not in line with where Jesus would be. But what he wants to say to them is, but if you think that's who you are, that's when you're living a lie. Elsewhere in Romans 12, Paul says exactly this. He says, stop wearing a mask and conforming to the rest of the world by pretending to be just like them. He says, instead, let the world see who Christ has made you to be in all its truthfulness. This is what we've got to wrap our minds around. That for Paul, when we live the way Christians should live, that's not the lie. That's coming from who we are. Now, Paul does get into it, will get into it, Scripture gets into it, why sometimes that's hard, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but the point that Paul makes is your struggle is not between you and you. Your struggle is between recognizing that you have been made a new creation by Christ and being confused that the most superficial aspects of you are the essence of who you are. Notice how he goes on and says this. He says here... Here, meaning what? Here, in Christ, in the church. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
Look, it would be absolutely true to say that what this message is teaching us, among other things, is that there's no place for racism in the church. And because, oddly, that's something that people seem to be confused about, let me say that again. There is no place for racism in the church. But, do you understand why Paul says there's no place for racism in the church? He says it's because that is the most superficial aspect of who anybody is. He says that those things, those ways that we used to define ourselves by our cultures and our tribes and our, our circumcision or uncircumcision, by our station in life, by our class in life, by our societal structure, by our race, he says those things are the most superficial aspects. And now that we know that Christ is all and Christ is in all, we know that there is, it doesn't even make any sense. Those are not any identifiers of who you are. Every single Christian in the world throughout history and for time going forward forever has more in common with each other than any other tribe has in common with any other tribe. I have more in common with my democratic voting Christian brothers and sisters than I do with my Republican atheist friends. I have more in common with my black brothers and sisters than I do with my white unbelieving friends. Because we have Christ. And Christ is all. And Christ is in all. But his point here is that it's that whole habit of identifying who we are on the most superficial basis possible. And then he goes on and he says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, and this is who you are, people holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Notice how clear he is now being. He's not saying, let the good part of you, the part of you which is compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, let that beat down the bad part of you. I don't even know how that works. He says, clothe yourself. This is the picture I get here. This, this is a picture that I, I've, I've read a lot of stories throughout my life, and it seems like this kind of story comes up a lot. Imagine that you are an orphan, and you're living in the gutter, and you're the poorest of the poor. You're just poor, and you're wretched. You're Oliver Twist, right? You're, you're uh, the pauper from the Prince of the Pauper. You're just out there. You're living in the gutter. You have no nobility in your lineage. You're just noble. And one day... Uh, the visitor for the king comes to you and he says, the king sent me to you because we've discovered that you are his daughter. You are his son. And so he wants you to come back to the palace and take your rightful place as the prince or princess. And so you go back and you become part of this, this, this prince, this castle, and undoubtedly it would be awkward at first. Undoubtedly, you would do things that they would be like, that's a weird thing for a prince to do. But you know what one of the first things they would probably do is? Change your clothes. Right? They would say, the way you're dressed is not fitting for a prince or a princess. The way you're dressed does not reflect who you are. It's been hiding who you are. The rest of the world looks at you and they think you're a poor pauper, but the reality is you have all the riches of the kingdom at your disposal. And that's what Paul is saying about us. We are princes and princesses of the kingdom of the universe, of the king of the universe. We have become uh, inheritors of all the riches of God. So why, says Paul, do you continue to wear the rags that you wore before you were adopted by the Lord? The rags of immorality, impurity, greediness, and idolatry. Instead, why don't you put on compassion and 
and humility and gentleness and patience. Because in our world, in the real universe, those are the marks of a person. See, these aren't us. These are just the clothing we wear. But we can still choose to put them on or not, but when we don't, it's mismatched. If you continued on insisting on wearing the pauper's outfits as the prince, it wouldn't make you any less the prince or princess. But it would confuse people. He goes on, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Here again, our interaction with each other should always stem from who we are and what God has done for us. He's forgiven us, and that's changed everything in us. Who then are you to look at that person across from you whom Christ is also in and hold them and judge them for a sin that Christ has died for and forgiven them for already? You don't have to do that. When you do, it's like you're wearing the wrong clothes. You're wearing your better clothes. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive us the Lord, forgive you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. John says in his gospel, and in his first letter, and again in the book of Revelation, John says that the thing that makes us look most like the people that Christ has made us to be, the thing that is most true to our new nature, the thing that is most like Christ himself, is love. John goes so far as to say, if there's somebody who's claiming a sort of spiritual authority in your life, and they're telling you how you can become more spiritual, and they're preaching to you, and they're teaching you, but they do not reflect love, he says, you are absolutely within your obligations to be skeptical that they even know God. Because that's what we should wear, the clothing of love. The bottom line is that when you receive the gospel, you do not become a split person. That is not good news. If that's the gospel, that's just miserable. You don't become a split person half good and half bad with the responsibility placed upon you to somehow kill the bad. Instead, we're called to recognize that we are new people with a new life and then to live accordingly. To put off the things which are part of the old life, things which were part of the judgment which we ourselves will no longer receive. There's an illustration that I've used for years, and I, literally for years, been 30 years or so. So undoubtedly, some of you have heard it before, and as I look at the front row of my family, they all could do it, probably. But I want to share this illustration with you because I really think it's, it's helpful to what we're talking about, because this idea of being a new nature but not feeling like a new nature is difficult. The complication in it is like I talked about, it's like we've been adopted from being a pauper to a prince, but we don't know what that looks like yet. And, and we wrestle with this idea of who we should be. So I want to share this with you. This is a stuffed pig I've had for so long now. His name is Ort. His name is Ort because the person who gave him to me, somebody in my church years and years ago, said, having grown up on a farm, that that's the sound that pigs actually make. They don't say point, they say more. Both of them sound like approximations to me, but that's okay. So here's what I want you to, yeah, they actually say, so this is my pig. So what I want you to think about is this. This, this pig, this is the illustration. Think about what it means to be in your nature and to hear what Paul is saying when he says, 
put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. Here's what I think he's saying. Let's pretend that we have, I have a friend, his name is Wilbur, and Wilbur is tragically completely mad. I mean, crazy. 100% lunatic. Alright? He believes something which is just not reality. And what he believes, the particular nature of his delusion, is that he believes he's a pig. Not a chauvinist, not sloppy, but an actual pig. That's why I bring this, because pig can mean so many things. I mean this except a lie. So he thinks he's a pig. He might think he's a stuffed pig. That would be a different illustration for another day. He thinks he's a pig. And so here's what I want to ask you, a couple of questions to think through. If Wilbur believes with all his heart, there's not a shred of doubt in his mind. I mean, he is completely sold on this. If he believes with all his heart that he is a pig, the first question I want you to ask, think about, is does that in fact turn him anatomically into a pig? Of course not. We all know the answer to that. He does not suddenly become a pig. Second question is, how is he likely to behave from moment to moment? Like a pig. Absolutely correct. So Wilbur believes he's a pig, and that causes him to roll in the mud, to eat pig slop, to or or or, or whatever the noise is. That causes him to be very pig-like in everything he does, to behave just like a pig, or at least to behave just like he believes a pig would behave, because that's what he believes he is. But we know, in fact, that just because he believes that about himself doesn't make it true. And here's the third thing. Let's say you and I are walking down the street, we look off to our left, we see this pig pen, and we see Wilbur, and he's rolling in the mud like a pig. One thing that I guarantee you neither of us are going to say is, that is the strangest looking pig I've ever seen. No, we are going to know that he's not a pig. His behavior isn't actually going to fool us about that. Because we know the difference. We can see the difference. So let's say we wanted to go over and help him out. We, we recognize, you know, we could probably guess. The other thing we might do is guess that he thinks he's a pig. We, we could be wrong about that. Maybe he's just playing a prank. We don't know. It's a weird April Fool guy. But, but we could probably guess, I think that guy thinks he's a pig. Because otherwise it's a really dumb prank. So we go over and we want to help him out. And we have a couple of approaches we could take. And one approach that we take is the approach we often think Paul is taking, but never actually does in Scripture. And it's the approach we sometimes take with one another as Christians, but never should. And that's to go up to Wilbur and say to him, You, my friend, are such a disgusting pig. You are the most pigly pig I have ever seen. And then we say, Now would you please stop acting like a pig? I hope you can see why that would be ineffective. Because what we've done is affirm the very delusion that makes him act like a pig, and then told him to stop acting like a pig. Now, if you are really, really persuasive, and you have a knack for spreading guilt, you might be able to get Wilbur to believe that it's wrong to be a pig, even though he is one. And you might be able to get him to believe that he should act like he's not a pig and live that lie, what he thinks is a lie, and pretend to be human. And you might get him to sit at the table and eat with a knife and fork and put on clothes and take a shot. But the reality is if that's all you accomplish, the odds are very, very good that he's going to end up back in the pig pen because he knows the reality and it's too hard to live a lie. Even if he succeeds at living your lie, you haven't helped him at all, have you? He still thinks he's a pig. What you've actually done is made it worse because now he thinks he's a pig and he thinks it's evil to be a pig and he's miserable about it. 
And now, whether he acts like a pig or doesn't act like a pig, he's going to feel miserable. That is not a good way to help our poor friend Wilbur. The way to help Wilbur is obvious, isn't it? Now, it might be difficult, but it's obvious. If we can get Wilbur to recognize he's not a pig, the rest will fall into place, won't it? If we could go to him, and instead of saying, you're such a pig, now don't act like it, if we went to him and said, hey, buddy, I see you're acting like a pig. You know what the surprising thing is? You're not a pig. <laughs> you're a human being. And that's why it's weird. See, here's the thing. If we saw a pig rolling in the mud and went over there to try to get him to stop acting like a pig, that would be weird, wouldn't it? The only reason we want Wilbur to stop acting like a pig is precisely because he isn't one. And that's what we want him to understand. You're not a pig, so stop acting like it. And this is how Paul deals with Christians. He never comes alongside in the scriptures and says to them, you are such a wicked sinner. He never says that to believers. Even when they're sinning wickedly. He doesn't say to them, you are such a wicked sinner, now stop doing it. Because he understands to do so would be to affirm the delusion that that's who they are. Instead, he does what he does here. Where he says to them, you are not a wicked sinner, so stop living like one. You've been made righteous and holy. He says something surprising to the Corinthians, a church which is infamous for living sinfully. He says to the Corinthians, why are you acting as if you're mere men? To which they probably wanted to say, duh, because we are. To which Paul wanted to say, you're not. You're saints. You've been sanctified. You've been cleansed. You've been made holy. It doesn't make any sense to live that way anymore. This is what it means to recognize we are new nature. We are no longer pigs. It's like we were pigs. We were transformed to humans, but it's taken a while for us to recognize it. And so the exhortation from Christ and from Paul is to recognize you are not who you were anymore. Now Christ is all. You have new life, so stop rolling in the mud. Here's the things, though, that, that are nice about this illustration. Am I saying that Christians can't sin? Not any more than I'm saying that Wilbur can't roll in the mud. Can Wilbur roll in the mud like a pig? Yes. Can a Christian sin? Yes. Does it make Wilbur a pig? No. Does it make a Christian a sinner, surprisingly? No. It makes you somebody who sins, and that's not good. But your identity is still holy and righteous. That's who Christ has made. And the reason it's not good to sin is because you're not a sinner. Because it's not who you are. I'll give you one little last story that I'd like to tell, and then we'll close there. Next time you're, you're out walking around and you see a butterfly float by, and it, it, it flies by, and you're walking with your friend, turn to your friend, point at the butterfly, and say, Look at that amazingly beautiful caterpillar converted by the cocoon. And your friend will likely look at you and say, what? Why are you speaking so oddly? And you'll say, technically it's true, isn't it? It was a caterpillar and it's been converted by a cocoon. And your friend will say, yeah, but that's just pedantic and dumb. Because the reality is that we don't call things by what they used to be and the process by which they changed because now it's something else altogether. It's a butterfly. You know a phrase that Paul never uses that occasionally we use about each other? Sinner saved by grace. And you say to me, but technically it's true, we were a sinner and we were saved by grace, and I say, you're correct, and I understand the heart of that is to show that we're all in the same place. We all owe it only to Jesus. I get the humility behind it, I have no problem with that at all. If you use that phrase, out in the world, I'm not going to come along and be pedantic about that. But I want you to understand the distinction here that Paul never calls us sinners saved by grace, he calls us saints. 
Because to call us what we used to be in the process by which we were converted is to miss the emphasis that we're not butterflies. We're now new creations. Now, if you saw a butterfly that was... I, I tell this, I always try to think what do caterpillars do uniquely. And I guess what they do uniquely to butterflies is they crawl along the ground. Right? Butterflies are almost always in the air or on a tree or something. So if you saw a butterfly that was crawling along the ground, you would assume it was sick or wounded. Because it's unnatural for the butterfly to do that. But it's not unnatural for a caterpillar to do that. So this is what I think Colossians is telling us. That the gospel is not about pretending to be better. The gospel is about believing that what happened at the cross actually happened. That Jesus made us new creations. And that's not a point of pride for us. That should be a point of humility for us because it's Jesus who did it. And then what Paul calls us to do, and will call us to do in the rest of the book as we pick it up next week, what Paul calls us to do is not to make ourselves better. There's a preacher I, I like a lot who always says the only people who get better are the people who realize that they can't. <laughs> Our job is not to make ourselves better. Our job is to stop living a lie. Our job is to believe what Jesus has done and understand that he's changed us and start living according to that truth. As we're being renewed, it said earlier, in the knowledge of its creator. As we talked about a few weeks ago, what's the real key to this? It's not to become super introspective and try to figure out how to weed out all that. Some introspection is fine, and God will lead you into that, but the real key is to be renewed in the knowledge of our creator. Who are we? Christ is all and in all. So you want to know who you are? Focus on Christ. Where's our life? It's hidden in Christ, so focus on Christ. You want to know what somebody who has a new nature should live like? We should live like Christ, so focus on Christ. <coughs> not on the rules, not on the do's, not on the don'ts. Not on the creeds, not on the religions, not on the theologies, but on who Jesus is. And to recognize he has made you holy and righteous. And take the risks that somebody who believes with confidence that it's already been done is willing to take. And stop wasting your time trying to put to death something that's already been put to death. And instead, just put to death the stuff that belonged to a life that's long. Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.